You know what time it is No matter where you've been So let's do it again Listen up and let the sun shine And we've got soul training Time to practice what you preach And here's Daniel, Alan, and Joe. Hey, Joe, you're the you're like the chief of police for soul training, so you should know the answer for this this question. But do we have like a trophy or like a plaque or anything that we've given to anybody, like for being on here so many times, like the record number of times? We've had a lot of people here one time. What what exactly do you think but, a chief of police like, does? Well, like you're you're the captain. You know, like you're the, you're the. Okay, no, no plaques, no awards. Well, okay. at least not that I'm aware well, of. Our guest today is Bart Warren, and I think Bart has uh, appeared on Soul Training. Is this three or four? I'm not sure. I don't know. Uh, it's no less than three. No less than three. That's true. Yeah, I mean, this makes at least three. Uh, so I didn't know if you had like a Soul so Training. About once a year, then. Yeah. yeah, about once a year. I think this is four. I think I'm going to say four. I'm, I'm going to roll the dice here. And anyhow, anyhow, uh, do we have like a soul training trophy or soul training Grammy or something we can give him for being our high score, being on the air so many times? Sure. All right, we'll Sweet. we'll work on on that, and uh, we're thankful that he's here. And I want to, we want to value his uh, his time and everybody's time. Okay. So you're, going, you're, you're going to interrupt me after that. I'm going to interrupt you after you started finally getting going. We're going to give Bart four times on a technicality. One of those was a Soul Training Classic that we reissued. Uh, so that same episode was published twice okay. last year. Did he do an overtime? I did an overtime. That he counts, did. right? Uh, they did an overtime. It's so we're five. Up, we're up to five then. Yes. Four right. live appearances, five total. So congratulations, Bart. You're Sweet. our fourth musketeer. <laughs> But you know, Ron and Don Williams—they're the only twofer we had. <laughs> That's true. They're the only twofer. I'll so. keep a spot on my shelf clear for the for Soul Training Grammy. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. uh, well. Today yeah, is definitely. That. It's coming for sure. Today is is equally as important. We here in the Soul Training headquarters, uh, Soul Training is important because all souls are important, is what we say. And with that being said, we want to reach back and talk again about the Old Testament, and that's why we have Bart here, and uh, we're going to pick his brain and, and listen to what he has to say. And I just kind of kick us off with a couple of questions, and then I was going to get out of the way and let you all talk too. Uh, but for me, this is not a question, more of a statement, but I can remember when I first became a Christian, and even now as I continue to study and grow, every time I think of the Old Testament, it comes from a New Testament passage, Romans fifteen four, and we all refer to it a lot. For whatever things were written, Paul's writing, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. And so for me as a young Christian and still a growing Christian as a student, uh, I take great comfort from a New Testament passage that references or is pointing back towards the Old Testament because me being a teacher, valuing education, I value the knowledge, the wisdom, the direction, the hope, the education, and I could keep going about what is what is there for us in the Old Testament. So Romans fifteen four. when I think of the Old Testament, that's what I think of. So 
you all, we're going to talk about how did we get the Old Testament. That's kind of the overarching question and theme. So I'll start there and get out of the way. How did we get the Old Testament? That's what we want to know. Well, that's a, a great question. Since we have already been together and discussed uh, how we got the New Testament, uh, we want to continue thinking about how we got the Old Testament because as far as we're concerned, uh, when we say the Bible, we don't simply mean Matthew through Revelation. We say the Bible, we mean Genesis through Revelation, um, all 66 of those books. And so the first thing I want to say just sort of as a general statement before we get into uh, how we got the Old Testament specifically, I think this this baseline has to be laid that when I say we're talking about the Bible Yes, that's the Old Testament, and yes, that's the New Testament, but we want to make sure we got three principles in mind. The Bible is inspired, and the Bible is infallible, and the Bible's sufficient. And when we say inspired, infallible, and sufficient, sufficient means it's enough. We don't need anything else. We don't need some dream to take place. We don't need some other prophet to come along. The Bible is enough. And we say the Bible's infallible. It means there's no errors in it. And the reason it's enough and the reason there's no errors is because it's inspired, and that means it's from God. Even Jesus, and here's, so here's where we get to the Old Testament conversation. Jesus understood the Old Testament was the Word of God. Mark 7, 13, uh, Jesus makes the statement that you know, when, he, when he's speaking of the things that you mentioned, Romans, the things are written aforetime, the things written before, the Old Testament. Jesus says, this is the Word of God. And we need to recognize that. If Jesus said the Old Testament is the Word of God, we need to recognize it as the Word of God. The Old Testament writers themselves knew what they were doing was sharing the Word of God. Uh, Exodus 17, 14, Jeremiah 1, 9, Ezekiel 1, 2, over and over again, Hosea 1, 1. I mean, the list is very, very long that they were sharing with us the words of God. God shared with them what to say, and they knew they were speaking the words of God. And again, the New Testament confirms this. Acts 4.25, when David was speaking, he was speaking by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Mark 12.36, several places in the New Testament confirms the Old Testament was God's word, God's message at the right time. Uh, Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, when, when Daniel was reading Jeremiah, he recognized he was reading God's word, so he knew that what was happening then was divinely ordained, and it was part of God's plan. Uh, in Nehemiah chapter 7, when they got together to read from the book of the law, the people stood up because they were revering it, and then they cried and they wept because of the words that were being shared. They knew they had God's word. And so let me say, make this statement. The books of the Bible are not considered God-given because they're found to be valuable or neat. They're valuable because they're given by God. Okay, that's, that's what we have to understand. So I want to say that. When we say we have the Old Testament, we have the New Testament, we have the Bible that's inspired from God, and so it's perfect and it's sufficient. And so I, I feel like that may be a long intro, but I feel like that was necessary to say before we start saying, well, how do we get the Old Testament? Well, first of all, I want to say, who cares? Why do we want to have this academic exercise about how we got the Old Testament? Well, here's why, because it's God's Word and it matters. Okay, so sorry to start with that, but to me, that's just so important that that has to be understood, and that has to be seen as unequivocal and unavoidable. This is God's Word. That's why we care. Uh, so uh, after having said that, Daniel, do you have anything you want to share, add to that? <clears throat> oh, no, I'm, I'm with you 100% on that. 
um, you know, for for me thinking about that Old Testament, the one of the biggest things that gives me confidence in it is how much the New Testament acknowledges it. You know, Jesus, yeah. the apostles, they're they're constantly treating it as inspired scripture, um, which you know just underscores to us if if Jesus and the resurrection, if all that is the linchpin of our faith. Even as the Old Testament gives testimony to Jesus, Jesus also gives testimony to the Old Testament. That makes Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as Alan said, and as you've said, that again and again, the New Testament writers refer to it. They refer to the Old Testament as the Word of God. They refer to Old Testament characters as real people who did real things. It's not uh, myth or stories. These are historical people who did things as moved by God. And one, one passage that comes to mind or one book that comes to mind is the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is beautiful mm-hmm. and it's deep and it's powerful, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless you know the Old Testament. And because line after line is a quotation from either from the Psalms or from Deuteronomy or something like this. And just Hebrews chapter 11, one of the most famous passages in all the New Testament with the hall of faith, that's all talking about Old Testament characters. And if you don't know what they went through and the, the trials they overcame and the heartaches they overcame, if you don't know the story in the Old Testament about these Old Testament people, well, the Hall of Faith there in Hebrews 11 is just, just another quaint or interesting passage. But when you recognize these are real people that did real things that were moved by the uh, message of God, it really makes a difference. Okay, I've got a question. In the New Testament, we talked whenever we did the, the how do we get the New Testament episode back last season, we spoke of there were other books that folks tried to attribute uh, to maybe Thomas or Judas, different folks like that. And we know that they go through a series of tests, and if they don't meet the tests, that's why they weren't included in the New Testament. Are there any books like that in the Old Testament that are out, outstanding that we know sure. they shouldn't be in here? Sure, absolutely. There's the same kind of deal in the Old Testament. We call these the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha is a word that in general terms means hidden. Uh, some of those Old Testament books would be like uh, Tobit and Judith and the Wisdom of Solomon and First and Second Maccabees, books like this that... Um, in what we may refer to as the Catholic Bible. My favorite is Bell and the Dragon. That's just a fun name. Yep, it is. It sounds like a Disney movie. What was it? Uh, Bell and the Dragon. Bell and the Dragon. Yeah. Uh, but uh, again, it's, it's lumped in with all these others that, that we're mentioning that are part of the Apocrypha. Um, but here's, here's what you need to know about that. They were produced at the wrong time, written at the wrong time, because they were written in that time that we would say is between Malachi and Matthew. Between Malachi and Matthew, there's this 400-year period uh, where inspiration of God was not taking place. And so they were written at the wrong time. That's one of the things that disqualifies them. Um, no inspired writers were writing at this time. From Malachi 4.4 you know, to Matthew 11.14, you see all these things that from the end of the prophets with Malachi to the beginning of John the Baptist, there was no inspiration uh, taking place from God. But here's the other thing about it. The apocryphal books don't even claim inspiration. When you're going through the Old Testament, thus saith the Lord appears 417 times in the ASV. But you can even go further than that. Expressions similar to thus saith the Lord 
are found more than 2,500 times in the Old Testament. So almost 3,000 times the Old Testament claims to be from God. The Apocrypha never does that. In fact, they go the other direction. The Apocryphal works will kind of say, hey, look, everybody, we're just a bunch of men. We're not inspired by God. In the preface to the book called Ecclesiasticus, uh, they make a confession there. They say, please pardon us if in any parts we fail. Because they're saying, look, we're just some regular guys. We love God and we love the people of God, but pardon us when we make mistakes because we're human. The Old Testament writers say, here's the message from God, and it's perfect. In 1 Maccabees chapter 9, verse 27, they specifically point out that they are living at a time when no prophets are alive. In other words, they're living at a time when there's no inspiration. So the people who wrote the Apocrypha didn't even claim to be writing a message from God. And that's why people like Philo, who lived until AD 50, never mentions it. Josephus flat out rejects them, mentions them, but rejects them. Jerome, the one who made the Latin translation of the Old Testament from the original languages, he rejects them flatly, saying, and here's a quote, they should never shape any doctrines of the church. So he acknowledges that the Apocrypha exists, but he says, these books should not shape our doctrine. They're not from God. So they were well-known, but maybe well they, known, but they also used them for history on purpose things. rejected, yes. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so that's what we should do today. You should read, mm-hmm. especially you should read First Maccabees. You should read First Maccabees if you care about the history of God's people. Now, you should recognize it's just like a history book. It's not a message inspired by God. But if you're curious as to where uh, things like Hanukkah comes from, and that, read First Maccabees. You find the history of all that. So it's a, a interesting. To say it's neat is you know, not doing it justice. It's important, but it's not inspired. It's not the Word of God. And so that's why it was never, those books were never, never, never included in the Hebrew canon. Judaism never accepted these books. Uh, and so it's in these extra books, though, part of the reason that this comes up is that that's in some of these extra books that things like prayers for the dead and the existence of purgatory, these kinds of ideas that you'll find in some religious organizations, they're not mentioned in the Word of God, but they're mentioned in the Apocrypha. And so they're held on to because some of those uh, groups kept the Apocrypha as part of their canon. And so that's why they brought in ideas like purgatory and praying for the dead and things like that, because it's in these books. And I think, Bart, correct me if I'm wrong, but, um, you know, they, the groups that accept these books don't call them apocryphal. They call them deuterocanonical. Exactly right. Um, yeah. But they, they, they still assign them a lower status. They, they don't view them with quite the same reverence as the rest of the Bible, I, I think. No, you're, you're right. But it's, it's a, there's a difference between books that are allowed to be read, if you'll allow this terminology, allowed to be read in the assembly. Uh, and they would include the deuterocanonical books as books that are allowed to be read in the assembly. When you assign a book the weight of that, that it's allowed to be read in the assembly, meaning it's, uh, it's divine, it may have second-tier status, but it still has divine status. And so we would not say, right. we would right. not say it's – I mean, if we read it in the assembly, it would be as a point of history, not as a word from God, right? And they're reading it in the assembly as if it's right. another word from God. And so that's, that's the major difference that uh, needs to be noted. You're exactly right. It's like they have a second tier, but when you have a second tier of things that are uh, from God, it still has clearly caused problems because of the— uh, Is that con- not God's best work? Well, because of you know, it's <laughs> continuing to push things, ideas yeah. like praying for the dead and these kinds of things that are 
making their way into people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just want to ask a, a very simple question for our listeners. How would you, just a good basic definition, you mentioned canon. Mm-hmm. What is a good definition of when you sure. when people say canon? Yeah. Well, to go back, the word canon originally was kind of just meant like a, a ruler, like a, a stick, but that was used as a measuring rod, which came to mean that was the standard. And so if something was canon, that means it meets the standard. And the way we speak of it now is the canon is the, the group of books that cannot be added to or taken away from. Meaning once the canon has been quote unquote closed, once the standard has been met, it can't be lengthened, it can't be shortened. It is what it is. And so when we say canon, what we're to put it in most simple terms, the canon is the group of books that are from God and not extra added to designed by man. They're the books that are from God. Let me let me put it this way. Canonicity, something that fits canon, is determined by God and only discovered by men. Men don't uh, determine what the canon is. God determines what the canon is. And so what we do is when God determines the canon, what we do is we discover it. We, we accept it. Uh, inspiration determines authority of a book. Councils don't determine authority of a book. Okay, Men don't get together and vote and decide what book goes where. God decided that. Uh, we can go back to, there's lots of different kinds of lists of criteria and things like that for what book fits being part of the canon. But let me give you this list. The criteria for being part of the canon. I've got about five things here. The first thing for a book to fit and be part of the Old Testament canon would be, was it written by a prophet of God? It has to come from someone who, as we said before, recognized they were a prophet. When Isaiah was giving his message, he was saying, here's God's message. And when he shared it, the people said, that's God's message. When Moses brought the message, he said, here's God's message. And the people all joined together saying, that's God's message. And we agree. So the first thing is, was it written by a prophet of God? The second thing is, did that prophet or that writer have credentials from God? Did he do certain things, work certain signs, bring a certain message that made it clear he was with and from God? The third thing is, did this message tell the truth? Remember, that's going to be one of the signs if someone's a prophet or not. If they, what they say comes to pass, if what they say is true, then you'll know. If they say something that's wrong, if they say something that's false, then clearly it's not from God. So was it written by a prophet of God? Did that writer have credentials from God? Did they tell the truth about God? The next thing is, did it have life-transforming power? Anybody can write a message. Only those writing from and for God can write something that changes a life. So did it possess life-transforming power? And then finally this, was it received and accepted by the people of God to whom and for whom it was originally written? Like I said, when... Uh, the people were hearing Moses share the message. They were terrified of the uh, shaking and earthquaking of the mountain. But they all said, amen, amen. We will do just exactly what you've said. We recognize this message from God. Just don't kill us, right? They knew it was God's. And so when you put all these things together, you have the criteria for, for canon. It's from God, from God's people, and the people recognized it right away. So let me break that down into just maybe three steps, okay? The basic steps in something being canon. 
First of all, it's got to be inspired by God. If it's not from God, we don't want it. Uh, you know, I'm reminded of what Ralph Gilmore says all the time when he's joking about his family. He says, when people ask me, how come we had four kids and not five, or how come we have four kids? Well, we didn't want five. That's what he always says. Well, why are there 39 books in the Old Testament? Because God didn't inspire 40. He inspired 39 books. That's why there's 39 books in the Old Testament. That's how many he inspired. So that's the first thing. It's inspired by God. The second thing is there's going to be recognition by the spokespeople that they're speaking for God. They were told to write this. I mean, you can look in your Bibles right now in Jeremiah 36, 28. Jeremiah had already been told one time by God, write these things down. Then the king destroyed them, burned them in a fire. So in Jeremiah 36, 28, God says, write it again. God told him to write it. Same thing, Isaiah 8, 1. God says, Isaiah, write this. Habakkuk 2, 2. God says, write this. So they were told to write it down. So that's the first thing. They recognize they're being told by God to do this. And the Moses, the writing of Moses was accepted. The writing of Joshua was accepted. Joshua 24, 26. They knew we've got the things of God. We're going to keep this, preserve it, write it down, preserve it, keep it here. Samuel, 1 Samuel 10, 25. We've already mentioned Jeremiah and Daniel and Daniel 9, 2. I mean, the list is so long that right away they said, this message from Joshua, that's from God. This message from Samuel, that's from God. There was a recognition that those people were actually speaking for God. So starts with inspiration, moves to recognition, and then finally there's preservation. Because when you know you've got something from God, like we said before with the New Testament, you're willing to die for it now. You're going to do whatever it takes to preserve it, do whatever it takes to keep it. Well, that was my next question. Well, I was yeah. I was about to ask about preservation yeah. and how you know it's accurate. Now, we know, well, through not too long ago, the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found it was a passage in Isaiah, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that turns out it's word-for-word accurate to what we have today. And so it's reason to believe that it was also accurate the other way, you know? Right. I didn't mean to steal your thunder. No, no, no. That's great. But that's, that's awesome. what I was. That's what I was about to ask you. So go, Bart. Go. No. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> when you found out that you have the Word of God, you're going to do everything you can to preserve it. Uh, and like we see in uh, Deuteronomy 31 verses 24 through 26, that's one of the things that they start doing right then. They take God's Word, they put it with the the Ark of the Covenant, and they make sure that these things are going to be preserved forever, not lost, not forgotten not changed, they're going to be kept. And so one of the things that, that you mentioned was uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls that helped prove that because by the time we get to the 1940s, uh, our oldest copies of the Old Testament went only about to about 900 or about 1000 AD. So our oldest copies of the Old Testament that we had intact were some thousand years after Jesus even. Well, 1947, we have the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's a pretty wild, interesting story, the way that happened, whether this young shepherd boy was looking for one of his, uh, one of his animals or if he was treasure hunting or what. But the long and short of it is he goes down into this cave looking for treasure and finds a treasure better than anything he could have ever dreamed of. He didn't know what it was, just a bunch of uh, jars with some old documents in them. And come to find out in that very first cave, we had copies of, like you said, there's a number of things, but one of the great finds in that first cave was this, what we call the Great Isaiah Scroll. 
that dates back uh, to a, a thousand years older than the oldest one we had. So sometime before Jesus. And so we look at that copy of this great Isaiah scroll and compare it to the copies we had, and we see that they were similar. They were just alike. And so the word we had was the word they had. We found out it confirmed that we really and truly did have God's message. Uh, in, the, in the 10 caves there at, at Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, they found more than 900 documents. Now, some of them were just tiny little fragments. Some of them were like the Isaiah Scroll, much more intact, but some 900 documents. About 200 of them were the Old Testament. We found portions of all the Old Testament books except for Esther. And then there were some 700 commentaries, rules about how to act and how to be there uh, in the Qumran community, a lot of them describing these other books. But the point is this. Let me just make a long story short on the Dead Sea Scrolls. It confirmed that we have the Word of God. We praise God and we give thanks to God because we know we have the Word of God because these documents were so much older than anything we had before, and yet they were the same as and, the ones we had. Isn't that how archaeology works like all the time? Amen. We yep. find things, people say, no, that city didn't really exist. Well, yeah, it did. Yeah, it did. <laughs> and it existed right here Yeah, that we found yeah. it. Daniel, do you have, um, or you, or Alan, y'all got a question from either one of you? want Daniel to go? Okay, Daniel, do you have something? Yeah, I, I, I've got a question. I, I, I have a question, but before I ask the question, I want to remind our dear listener that we did an episode where we talked a lot about the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. That may have been the first episode about how we got the Bible. Um, Were you I on that one? us having a detailed conversation about that. Sorry, uh, Daniel. I didn't mean to ruin anyway, your Anyway, so that would be worth, uh, no, that, that would be worth going back and, and listening to as well. Um, Bart, uh, I've always wondered, maybe you can help us out. The, um, the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Old Testament contain the same information, but they're arranged differently. As a matter of fact, some of, there's a different number of books. Some of the books are, the Christians have divided them into two books or multiple books where while the, uh, Jews kept them in one book. Um, what light can you shed on? why they're arranged differently. Sure. Yeah. The, uh, one of the great things is that uh, going back to these ancient writers, some of these ancient commentators, is that uh, we see from, from the beginning, from the time that these books were collected, uh, remember as we said, we, that they're, when Moses wrote, we recognized that was God, Word of God. When Joshua had his things, we recognized that was the Word of God. When Samuel wrote, we know that was... So as the Bible was, was growing, as the Old Testament collection was growing, uh, we came to a point where we recognized we have just the right books, and it stayed that way. Uh, we call it 39 books, right, from Genesis to Malachi. Uh, they would say, the ancient Jews would say uh, they had either, depending on the way they collected them, either 22 or 24 uh, books, but it turns out to be the exact same numbers are 39 because First, Second Samuel would just be Samuel, First, Second Kings would just be Kings, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah would just be, you know, one book. Uh, the minor prophets would all just be one book. So the book of the 12, that's just one book. Uh, so when you put all those things together, whether you put uh, Lamentations with Jeremiah or uh, Ruth with Judges, uh, you'd either have 22 or 24 books, but it still equals our same 39. So uh, we have the same number. Now, what you were talking about, the arrangement 
is they would be arranged in the Jewish, in the Hebrew Bible, in uh, the law, the writings, and the prophets. And so you have the first five books of the law, the books of Moses, and you have uh, the writings, which would be uh, things like, you know, the Psalms and Job and, and those types of books, and then the histories, which are uh, the prophets. And so putting in those three categories, their last book in the Old Testament is actually the Chronicles. So they go from Genesis to Chronicles, even though it's the same books that we have arranged uh, from Genesis to Malachi. Is that what you had in mind? Uh, yeah, um, but my question is, why? Why do the Christians rearrange it? Oh, well, that's a good question. Uh, I know they arranged theirs because of the, the threefold uh, division of law and writings and uh, prophets. And we arrange ours differently, some on uh, you know the, the major prophets put together, the minor prophets put together um, to be arranged that way. Uh, what, what insight do you have? I really, I really don't. It was an honest question. Um, I did a little searching around and couldn't find easily a, a good answer. So I'm, I'm just very curious as to how, or even more than how, why it came about that uh, we have, why, why we divided some of the books up that they didn't divide up. Oh, divided up as in, you talking about arrangement, or are you talking about divided as in Ezra and Nehemiah being divided into two books? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, Ezra and Nehemiah being two books, okay. the 12, like you said. Okay, it up well, the, I have an answer for that, I think. Uh, those, they were most often okay. arranged uh, for what would fit on a scroll. And um, whenever you have a message like uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, it's one story you know, it goes together. These men worked together, and Ezra and Nehemiah were contemporaries and worked together, uh, but also was enough to fit on one scroll. Uh, we divide it because of the, the way that the stories themselves can be uh, divided. You know, there's a good breaking point. Um, but if uh, First Second Kings fits on a scroll, you know, it's one, one book written together that we have divided for uh, the sake of reading and readability and accessibility. So did that division come along with the, the invention of the codex then? I'm not sure when it happened. I, I can't really have an answer for that. Hmm. Okay. Well, we didn't get to um, Alan's favorite topic of penmanship and writing, what do you call it? Your instruments, your writing instruments. instruments yeah, <clears throat> Bart gave us a, a, a tremendous <laughs> overview of of our, our topic, and I know Daniel usually closes us out. And where I'm appreciative, I know we are. We're our listeners, dear listeners, are appreciative of of Bart's appearance tonight, and I hope he keeps that space available available on his shelf. For we're going to get him a little something <laughs> to to put there. Being our like, I'm gonna count it five times, but. Uh, I am kind of, you know, interested, you know, maybe another episode. I'm into the things that I guess the less spiritual matters, things like the writing materials that kind of went into uh, of how different writers, how they, you know, wrote the words, uh, the materials on and what they used, uh, you know. Well, it is our podcast. And so, yeah, we have a time frame, but 
I'm I'm okay with one more question if Mr. Warren has the time uh, to do. Do you want to you want to go down that road? Uh, well, just uh, the only thing I because was let's be honest, it took us a year to do the follow up to yeah. when do we get the new. If we don't do it now, it probably ain't going to happen. Yeah, I was just interested. I was really curious, and like the article that you sent, it says the Old Testament makes no mention of ink used for writing on scrolls, but it does use, but it does list. I'm sorry, some of the other materials the authors used: an iron stylus, which is in Job 19:24, Jeremiah 17:1, a reed pen, Jeremiah 8:8, 8, 8, a pen knife for sharpening the pens, Jeremiah 36:23, and a writing case, Jeremiah 36:18. Uh, what knowledge could you impart on us about the materials that were actually sure. used by different writers yeah. of the Old Testament? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you mentioned the writing instruments, but uh, the Old Testament was written on, so that's what it was written with. I would refer you to what it was written on. Originally, we would say Exodus 34, 1, written on stone, but then uh, Deuteronomy 27, verses 2 and 3, uh, written on stone, but this time stone covered with plaster. Uh, Exodus twenty eight thirty six written on gold, etched into the gold. Uh, so right there, Scripture itself tells us that the Old Testament was written in stone, stone covered with plaster, and in gold. Then we know moving forward in time, because one of the things that happens there is, remember we said that what's the three major things of canonicity, it's given by God, their spokesmen recognize that they're speaking for God, and then the people preserve it preserve it. They want to keep it and make sure that, because this is so special, it's a document that has not only God's heart and his mind, but it's got God's name written on it. So we want to take care of it. So after being written on stone and in gold and things like that, that begins being written in clay tablets, then later on waxed wooden tablets. And then finally, the the best and most well-known and most often used is like the papyrus and the leather and the parchment. These are the things that the Dead Sea Scrolls were were found written on, uh, and but all of these things are temporary at best, right? And so there's a need to continue to copy and a need to preserve the new documents. Uh, and one interesting fact is that the scribes, those who were in charge of preserving and copying and maintaining these things, they always felt like the newer copy was preferable to the older copy. You know, I know right now we're so fascinated with archaeology and finding the oldest and the oldest, and that's great, and we need to do that. But they were of the mind that the newest was the most preferable because it was less likely to be uh, subject to wear and tear, you know, kind of like we have right now, you know, a, a new shirt, a new car, they're in the best shape. Well, if we're concerned about the Word of God, we wanted the the newest, best version of it as well. Not change, it's preserved, still the exact same Word, but the copy I'm holding itself is nicer and, and looks and feels better because you care about the Word of God. Uh, the older copies were uh, not generally preserved. What a blessing it would be if they had been. Uh, they were often placed into a thing called a geniza. It means another word for to hide. It's kind of like a storeroom for documents we're not going to use anymore. And then there was sometimes after that a ceremony where they would take and and bury, and sometimes if there wasn't a word of God on it, they would burn well, these old how, documents. Uh, was it Joe Ash that they found the word of God? Was it him? that? Well, it could have been in a place like that. It was definitely there. It had been neglected, where in a Geniza, it's been placed here on purpose because we're preserving something else. Gotcha. Uh, and the motive is to prevent improper use 
of the material on which the sacred name of God has been written. Um, and there's a, a really interesting quote I want to read you that even going back, all the way back to the Talmud, they recognized that there was to be regulations for the preparation of the copies that they were going to make. And so here's a, here's a quote from the Talmud. The copyist must sit in full Jewish dress, wash his whole body, not begin to write the name of God with a pen newly dipped in ink, and should even the king address him while writing the name of God, he must take no notice of him. And then the roles in which these regulations are not observed, they are condemned to be burned or buried in the ground. So if you had a word of God, a document from God, you've been preserving and copying, it's supposed to be the word of God, as I said, the book of Deuteronomy, and it becomes messed up in some kind of a way. He says, bury it in the ground. But when you're doing your copying, you're to be washed, clean, dressed, and nobody comes between you and copying the word of God, not even the king. They took their copying seriously. Questions answered. That, Thank that's you. really something. <clears throat> that's a, uh, I appreciate that. That's a great way to wrap us up, I think. And so we want to... Uh, Thank you, Bart, for taking time out to be uh, our favorite uh, guest, uh, most frequent guest. We look forward to the next time that uh, that you can join us. And on behalf of Alan and Joe, we want to thank the elders at South Green Street Church of Christ for making soul training possible. And dear listener, we want to thank you for making us a part of your day and your spiritual diet. Uh, we would love to hear from you. What questions do you have? What feedback do you have? And we'll deal with as many of those things as we can. So until next time, keep soul training. Soul training. Uh-huh. Time to practice what you preach. Ooh, yeah. Yes, we do. We've got soul training. To learn more, you can email us at soultrainingpodcast at gmail.com or you can write to us. P.O. Box 503, Glasgow, Kentucky, 42142. That's soul training.